Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Joe, for those who don't know me. Um, and before uh, we start, uh, if you just want to read along, if you want a copy of what I'm going to say, there's a few copies on the table over there, I think. Um, so if you want to pop up your hand, I'm sure someone will bring you on. Let's, um, let's ask God for his help this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it challenges us and opens our eyes to you and to the reality of our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us now as we look at this passage, as we look at what it says about you and about us. And I pray that we would not leave unchanged this morning. Amen. Great. So, to start off, I wonder if this works. It might not. Can you flip through? I wonder, do you recognize this man? This is Lloyd Grossman. Well, before he was selling tasty cooking sauces, he was snooping around people's homes. No, he wasn't a burglar. He helped present a TV show called Through the Keyhole. In each episode, Lloyd would go through the keyhole and look around a famous person's home. He would walk around pointing out distinctive features that showed what type of person lived there. Look at this dining table with 12 seats. This shows that this person who lives here likes entertaining. He would then ask a panel of celebrities, who'd live in a house like this? Whose house is it? Well, today's passage answers a similar question. It takes us through the keyhole of the early church and gives us a glimpse of how it worked. We see the distinctive features that show what the church is like and answers the question, whose church is it? So far in Acts, we've seen the birth of the church. Jesus has died, risen, and ascended into heaven. But the story hasn't stopped there. We have seen how the first believers are equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. Through the Holy Spirit's power, the apostles have been pointing people to Jesus, no matter the cost, pointing to the only one who can bring about salvation. The body of believers is growing, and they have formed a community. But whose church is it? Who is at the center of all of this? Is it the Apostles' Church? Is it everyone's church? Well, in today's passage, we see it is God's church. It's made up of God's people, and that means God is truly present there. When we read through Acts, it's clear we are not just reading an interesting historical account of the first community of believers, but it's a continuation of God's salvation plan. He started it right back in the, in the Garden of Eden and is now fulfilling it through the church. God is building his kingdom on earth through the church. This passage is difficult. Up until this point, the story has been of incredible and miraculous growth and life, but this passage seems to interrupt this story of salvation. This account of God's judgment through death can be quite a shock. 
but it's important we don't move on from it quickly because it's sudden and strange. But it speaks a message to us today, into our thinking and into our church. So to help us through uh, this passage, we're going to look at it in three parts. Firstly, we'll see how the church is changed by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we'll see that God guards the church. And lastly, we must consider how we should fear God. So firstly, we see that the church is changed by the Holy Spirit. If we look again at verses 32 to 35, in these verses, we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, creates and fills a church, that church is united in heart and mind. Now, being united in heart and mind and sharing were not words you would use to describe my house when I was younger. You see, I have two older brothers, and sharing was not one of our strong points, especially when it came to food. So often, there would just be one ice bun left. I remember it well. I would go and grab the knife as quickly as I could to cut the biggest slice, and then one of my brothers would say, okay, Joe, if you cut it, I choose which slice I have. Game changer. I would agonize over whether I had the exact middle before I dared cut. I didn't want to share. I wanted it for myself. I didn't want to lose out. And I'm sure you have uh, similar stories of difficulty sharing. It's human nature, isn't it? We do not have to teach our children how to take and keep, but how to give and share. And often our unwillingness to share doesn't just happen with the small things. We are so driven to collect, to earn, and to gain as much as we can to make ourselves comfortable, to not lose out. We keep a very tight hold on our possessions. So when we read this passage, it strikes us, what is going on here? No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own but they shared everything they had? These Christians are both united and freely sharing. In verse 34, when they saw a need, they sold their possessions and brought it to their leaders to be distributed. How different is this group of believers? This is not normal. What makes the early church like this? Well, this church is filled with people who are submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit. If we remind ourselves of how last week's passage ended, we see in verse 31 that the Holy Spirit's presence was within the church. And in verse 33, we see he remains in the church. A great power is described, the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is allowing the apostles to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Since his arrival, the Holy Spirit is pointing people to Jesus, testifying about him. Peter, empowered by the Spirit, has been calling people to see that Jesus, whom they crucified, is the author of life, Lord and Messiah. He could not be held down by death and has been raised to life. The Spirit is at work within the church, pointing people to Jesus. 
And when they truly see what Jesus has done, they are united in heart and mind. So it is the spirit that loosens their grip on their possessions. They're no longer seeing their things as their own, but there's an overflow of generosity. God's people don't live distinctively through willing it up in themselves or Peter's preaching alone. No, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. God himself is present in the church. Now, it's important to say that this is not some weird, cultish community of Christians, all living in one house and owning nothing. No, they have possessions, just like us. They have money. They had land. But the Spirit has pulled away their commitment to selfishly hold on to their own things. Because of what they have gained in Jesus, they cannot remain unchanged. They naturally and joyfully share what they have, living out the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the example we're given in verse 36 and 37. We meet Barnabas, a person of God. He submits, he submits to the Spirit and he is changed by God. He sold what he owned. He brought the money and he put it at the disciples' feet. And his actions bring about encouragement to others. Through the Spirit, he was generous and open. He sold, he brought, and he put. And these examples are not just an account of a few individuals or one church at one specific time. No, this is a picture of what what church looks like when God is present. The same Holy Spirit is pointing us to what Jesus has done. So will you submit to him and let him ease your grip on your possessions? You see, when when you see this openness and generosity happening among believers in your church, that means God is present. When leaders are testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, that is God's presence among you. When the church comes to the spiritual and physical support of someone grieving, That is God's presence among you. When the church helps someone find a safe place to stay, clothes them and feeds them, that's God's presence among you. John Lennon, in his famous song, Imagine, called people to imagine a world at peace without the barriers of borders or the divisions of religion. He painted a picture, posed the possibility that the whole of humanity could live unattached to material possessions. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. This is what people in this world long for. But in this passage, we are shown a better vision that when actually, when God is among his people, When the Spirit comes and fills the church, it is united and people are provided for. When this happens, we get a glimpse of heaven, 
no one in need. So what we see is that our world desperately needs more of God's presence, not less. Liverpool desperately needs God's presence. Liverpool needs this church. Let us therefore submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let him show you Jesus. Let us be changed and see what type of community God creates here in Liverpool. It's going to be countercultural. And as uh, Pete showed us last week, that's going to bring opposition and ridicule. But it's the only thing that will truly bring life. It's, an, it's amazing, isn't it, to consider that God was present in the first church and that God is present in this church, in his church. His presence is life-giving. But as we move on to the next section of this passage, we see his presence is also frightening and can bring death. So let us consider that God guards the church. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, we see that because God is present, the church is not to be misused. God guards the early church against falsehood. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at someone using something and thought, that, that just doesn't look right. You are not using some, that for what it was made for. I occasionally um, see one of these driving down the road. A machine designed to take on the toughest environments nature could throw at it. It can go through deserts, through rivers, through snow. What is it used for? For driving along concreted roads to go through Liverpool city centre. That's not what it was made for. Or have you seen uh, one of these? I saw um, someone riding along uh, one of these bikes recently. And now these bikes um, have very big tires. They're designed to cross sand dunes or hurtle down snowy mountains. What did I see it used for? Pulling a wheelie in the park. When we see things like this, we think, that's not right. That's not what it was made for. And that's true when we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This couple misused and mistreated the church for their own personal gain. That's not what it was made for. They did not treat the church as the very dwelling place of God. And God judged them for it. And there is a clear warning for us here. Not a warning of instant death, but a reminder that the church is where God is. The church was not built by God and empowered by the Spirit to then be misused, to not be treated as the very dwelling place of God. So let's look uh, a bit uh, closer at where they went so wrong. Well, like Barnabas, they sold a piece of their property, but before they brought and put it at the feet of the apostles, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money and kept it for himself. Next, we see Ananias is confronted by Peter, who questions him on what he has done. And in verse 5, we read, 
when he heard this, he fell down and died. Three hours later, Sophia walks in, unknowing of her husband's fate, and on corroborating with his story, she too falls down and dies. So what's going on here? Why are their actions worthy of death? Are they really? Isn't keeping a bit of money back a sensible thing to do? Isn't that what we would do? What really is their sin? Well, Peter exposes their sin in his questioning, revealing what they did was not sensible stewarding, but dangerous and foolish. See, Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive the church by appearing to have given the full amount. They wanted to appear generous when they weren't. They wanted to appear like Barnabas had done, but they didn't have the same heart and mind as Barnabas. We see their hearts were not filled with the Holy Spirit and a love of God, but were filled with lies. Peter's questioning is emotive. He knows from personal experience what the damage caused when Satan's lies are listened to. Look at verse 3. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And, and later in verse 4, what made you think of doing such a thing? So, is the, is the problem the amount they gave? No. Peter shows that they didn't have to give anything at all. Giving is volu- voluntary. It's out of love for God and for people that God's people give. Look down at what Peter says in verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You see, the apostles were not making the believers sell all they have and give everything away. No, Peter says to Ananias, it's yours. It was your property before you sold it, and it was your money after. To do with it what you like. You had no obligation to give it, but instead you wanted to appear like Barnabas. You pretended to give it all, but in fact, you kept some back. The lie that Ananias and Sapphira believed was that God is not present in the church. And their sin was that they did not treat the church as that, as the very dwelling place of God. They thought they were just lying to people in the church. They thought they could use the church for their own purpose to look good to gain a name for themselves. But look at who they actually lied to. Who have they tried to deceive? It's God himself. In verse 3, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, you have not just lied to human beings, but to God. And to Sapphira, Peter says in verse 9, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Ananias and Sapphira were not just lying to gain standing among fellow men and women, but they came into the very place of God and lied to him. Their judgment was death. Their judgment is severe and surprising. Why did God kill them right then and there? Honestly, I don't know. 
This uncomfortable truth can't easily be answered away. There is nothing like this in the rest of Acts or the New Testament. This sits uncomfortably with us, and it should. It doesn't sit uncomfortably with us because this is completely out of character from God. No, actually, through the Bible, we do see that when people misuse the dwelling place of God, when they forget God is present, they are judged. Back in Joshua 7, Achan stole from God and he died. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu misuse the dwelling place of God and they die. No, these verses are uncomfortable because they remind us that God's presence is holy and our sin really is deadly. It reminds us that God is bigger than us and his church must not be used by us for our own gain. We must be careful not to treat the church carelessly as if it doesn't matter. God will not let the unity of his community, his people with whom he dwells, be broken by sin. The church is not just some social gathering of people who consider God from afar. No, the church is at the center of God's salvation plan, is how he's bringing the good news to the ends of the earth. So how can we mistreat the church? Perhaps it's not lying about how much you have given to the church. But are we at risk of treating the church a little like a social club? A place to catch up, reconnect, and maintain relationships, but sparing no thought to the one and only relationship that really matters? Or within church, are we unforgiving? Holding a grudge against someone who has wronged us, not thinking how it is only by God's amazing forgiveness that we can even enter his church. Or are we coming to church focused on how others perceive us, thinking much about what others are thinking of us and not thinking of God and what he thinks of us, what you think of him? If we are doing these things, we are mistreating the church. We are not recognizing its importance for us and everyone around us. So finally, let us consider how we should fear God. How did the church respond to this shock? Well, look down at verse 11. We read, great fear seized the whole church. The church feared God. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of fear. It's likely something negative. Because our culture generally has a negative view of fear. Um, I just... Oh, sorry. There he is. Okay, this, this picture is of arguably the greatest climber of all time. His name is Alex Honnold. This man has climbed some of the hardest climbs in the world, over 2,000 feet in height, without a rope. Yet if he misplaces his foot... Or his hand, he falls. No second chance. So understandably, before he climbs, he wants to rid himself of fear. Fear is negative. 
Fear will stop him from keeping going, from progressing and achieving great heights. A number of professional climbers were, were interviewed and they also said avoiding the fear state was the single most effective way to succeed. And as well as this uh, intense physical and mental fear state, all types of fear are seen in our culture as holding us back, aren't they? People believe that avoiding and conquering fear enables you to be successful. So when we read that great fear sees the whole church, we quite rightly think, oh no, the church is in a bad way. How will the church grow? How will this church reach out? Won't fear damage the church? Well, what we actually see is quite different. Actually, fearing God is exactly where the church needed to be, where we should be. Why? Well, because of what we see in Acts and what we know of God's promises, a fear of him does not cripple the church, but it gives life and growth. Look with me at the next few verses on from the passage today. I'm eating into Ken's next week, but I hope you'll forgive me. Um, Verses 12 to 14. Let's look at this. The apostles kept performing many signs and wonders, and the people were meeting. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Wow. Here is a church that people walked past and said, I dare dare not go in. But I can't help myself. I need to find out more. What they're talking about is so good. You see, fearing God is truly seeing him as he is. Mighty powerful, good, and just. Fearing God is giving him the glory he deserves, that despite our sin, he has sent his son to die in our place. He is awesome. If we, as a church, are fearing God, it means that we are recognizing his presence is here. If we're fearing God, it means we are submitting to his spirit, working among us and through us to create a community that gives life. People will look in and will be in awe of the God we worship and drawn in by the grace we speak of. Fear of God is not negative. It's exactly what we need. But so often we get it the wrong way around, don't we? We fear what's immediately around us, the people that surround us and the situations we find ourselves in. The things that occupy our hearts and our minds, that's what we fear. God knows we do that. That's why he is always telling us that there is no need to fear those things. But what God calls us to do is reorient our fear to the one who is mighty. What is it that you fear? Do not fear how you will clothe yourself or in your family. Fear him who set each star in its place, who created the world yet knows and cares intimately about you. 
Do not fear friends, family, or culture. Do not fear what they will think of you, whether they will accept you or respect you. Fear him who sees into your very heart and yet accepts you fully when you put your trust in him. Do you fear the illness that is running through yours or a loved one's body? I sometimes do. Let's instead fear him who is greater than death. Fear him who stepped into humanity and suffered alongside us so he can sympathize with our weakness. Fear him who rose from the grace so that in him death is not the end. So let's return to the question that we started with, the question that this passage answers. We've looked through the keyhole into the early church. Whose church is it? It's God's church. It's God's church. It's changed by the Holy Spirit, made up of God's people who are now empowered by the Spirit to live in distinctive community. It is the very dwelling place of God himself. And this is still true today. God is still present in his church. Church is where his life-giving and awesome presence dwells. Let us therefore treat the church as that. Because God is using the church to transform our lives, the lives around us, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we are so thankful for you. We praise you for your salvation plan that you started right at the beginning of time and are fulfilling through the church. Lord, we thank you that the church is yours. The church is where you dwell. And we thank you that your presence is life-changing and awesome. Lord, help us to reorient our fear away from the things that we do not need to fear about. But Lord, may we fear you, fear your awesome power and your goodness. May we submit ourselves to you and be changed by you so that our lives will be transformed and that the lives of the people in Liverpool will be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.